that time of the week again. It's Flat Out RC podcast time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. My name is Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. I tell you what, it's a good place to be, Melbourne, Australia, at the moment. We're coming in, we're in spring. We're officially in spring. Uh, it's been a little bit wet down where I am. So uh, I know a few of the flying fields are a bit waterlogged at the moment, but got a good episode for you. A gentleman that his name's come up quite a few times. Uh, different guests have mentioned him. Cliff McIver, he's uh, our guest this week. Uh, and you know what? Part one and part two. We had so much to cover that you can hear Cliff's story part one today. Next week, we'll do part two. So uh, that's how much ground we covered. Great story to tell. Quite an influential person in the model flying scene down in my neck of the woods. But before we get to my chat with Cliff, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, what a week it has been. So there's been a lot on my mind. Firstly, we lost our queen, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Condolences to the entire family. I've always respected the queen. Uh, when you think about it, there's never been any drama around the Queen. He's somebody that's dedicated her life to the job of being Queen and to the people of the Commonwealth. And uh, she's quite an inspirational person. So um, sad news to hear her passing. And now we have a king. And uh, that means we have a king's birthday holiday now. So we'll see how all that goes. Now... Big event coming up this weekend. It's this weekend, the 39th Mammoth Scale Flying, 17th and 18th of September. Um, get on down to the Valley Radio Flyers Club uh, just south of Shepparton there at Caramomus. Uh, if you get into Google and you type in Valley Radio Flyers, I think it shows up on the map where the field is. 17th to 18th of September. Um, I just spoke to the president, Les. Uh, literally just had a chat with him and said, Les, what's happening weather-wise? How's everything looking? He was actually at the field cutting the grass, and he said uh, there's a few puddles around, but they're, that they're way out of the way. He said the, the strips are really good. Uh, he said they're, they're, they, they're totally and utterly fine. Um, people were flying off, off them all day, um, and everything is looking good. It's all going ahead. Um, no matter what the forecast is, it looks like it's all going ahead. So I'll be there. I'll be there Saturday and Sunday. I'll be the guy with a with camera gear, taking photographs, going to shoot a video as well. Uh, so that should be a bit of fun. Um, when you're there, make sure you get a raffle ticket. There's some really good raffle prizes um, for the pilots. You can win a UMS radial engine. You get into the draw and you can also buy additional tickets at $10 each. Plus, there's also other major raffle prizes uh, thanks to Model Flight, which I found out that, yes, you can win an ultra stick, but that's actually being donated by one of the generous club members. But Model Flight have donated a couple of Phoenix model uh, scale kits. Um, so good to have them on board as well. So big thanks to OzStars models for the UMS radial engine that you can win. And then Model Flight for a couple of kits. And, of course, that the, 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 the gentleman that donated the, the ultra stick, big thank you to him as well. So that just helps uh, support the club financially with these raffles. And there's food and drink available as well. So don't bring food, buy it there. Uh, really good hamburgers and the usual stuff. So get on down this weekend. Can't wait. It's my one of my favourite events. The best of the best large-scale models will be there. So, uh, And if you are coming, remember, 
scale planes only. Don't bring your sport jet. Uh, monoplanes have to be 80 inch minimum and biplanes 66 inch minimum. More information is available on the valleyradioflyers.com.au website. So take a look at that. Okay. What has been on my mind? Well, I've just spent the day in my garage working on model planes. And I want to talk to you about the task that I hate the most in aero modeling because I'm terrible at it. And that is keeping your wires neat inside your model plane. Now, I've got my 30cc electric model, aerobatic model, that um, I still get to maiden. I pulled that out first out of the trailer because all I needed to do is put some wheel pants on it. I'd fiberglassed up the wheel pants to strengthen them up because I know how weak the wheel pants are in those models. So I just I put a few extra layers of fiberglass and uh, that all dried and everything. So I put the wheel pants on. So that's done. Easy job. That model's all good. Then I pulled out my, my glider, my F5J glider. And the problem with these F5J gliders, they're a competition composite glider, carbon fiber. They're really narrow. They're really tight. And there's heaps of wires. Heaps of wires. There's wires because you've got flaps and ailerons, rudder, elevator, um, cables, a couple of cables coming from the ESC, ones for power, ones for the signal, ones for and the little telemetry thing that the F5J people have to have for competition. There's wires everywhere. And I just can't keep things neat. I just, no matter how hard I try, does my head in. Plus, I have to put the receiver in. So the receivers take up space. Uh, I suppose if I had an S-Bus system, it'd probably be easier. But anyway, I, I had to put the receiver in. And of course, all the all the antenna needs to come outside of the fuselage. So trying to work out where am I going to put this and, and routing them. I'm pushing, um, I'm trying to uh, use fishing line to push, uh, drill a hole through the fuselage, push the fishing line through, sticky tape it to the antenna and see if I can pull it through. And hopefully it's all going to come through the tiny little hole. I sort of managed to do it. Um, surprisingly enough, I sort of did manage to do it. Uh, I've done one of them out of the one, two, three, four that I need to do. Uh, and then just trying to locate everything. And this glider has a removable nose cone, like the front section is removable. Uh, and so I'm trying to work it out. So it's just some nice and neat kind of system. And it's just doing my head in. So much so that uh, I ran out of time. I also ran out of patience as well. So, you know, I just, I, I just hate it. Uh, I'm dreading actually. My my new jet is coming, and I will do a reveal video. So, um, to to, you know, complete the story of the uh, episode that I had earlier in the year of crashing my jet. The, the new jet's almost here, and uh, I've got to put the, the the radio gear in that. And I'm I'm literally going to line up mates and say, I'm coming round. I need your help. Help me. I just cannot do it. And, and, you know, those people that have got that skill set, I admire you. It's just not me. It's guest time, my favourite part of the podcast. And this week, we, we're we doing a part one and part two. I've never done that. It's a first. So it's a good trial to see whether you guys like it or not. Um, but uh, And it's also the first interview that I did over a phone call because normally I do it via Facebook Messenger because the audio quality is a little bit better. But it worked. It seemed to have worked okay. 
so um, this week's guest is Cliff McIver, as I mentioned at the start of the show. Cliff has been an aeromodeler for many, many years. He's 80 years of age now, so he's been around for a long time. Quite a well-known name down here in Victoria because he had a, a hobby business called Hawthorne Hobbies that he ran for 20-plus years, I think it was. And uh, so people knew him from that. He was also very involved with the Doncaster Aero Modelers Club, which uh, we talk a bit about. Uh, Doncaster clubs are um, you know, quite a you know, club that's been around for quite a while down here, located in, in the suburbs, really. It's really a suburban field that flies on a little, uh, almost like a football field, I call it. Um, but anyway, so Cliff, uh, we've got a lot to cover with Cliff from his early days starting out through to the Doncaster Club through to, you know, the pattern flying and, and beyond. So this is going to be part one of the interview with the one and only, the famous Cliff McIver. Well, this is a world first for the Flat Out RC podcast world. It's the first time we've actually conducted an interview over a phone call. And I hope it goes well because it, people might try to ring us in the middle of it, but we'll just deal with it. But I have a gentleman on the line that keeps on coming up all the time in this podcast. It's the one and only Cliff McIver. How are you? Fine, thanks. Nice to speak to you, Andrew. Well, I've, I've spoken to you for ages about coming onto the podcast and, and the only way we could do it is through the phone call. So it's, it's sounding okay. So we'll deal with it. Now, Cliff, you, well, there's so much to cover because you've been in the hobby for a long time. You're a well-known name down here in Victoria because you've been in the scene for a long time. But where did your aero modelling journey begin? Well, it, it began when I was about 11. Um I went to Dendy Park in East Brighton and saw a couple of guys flying planes and knew I had to do it. So I found out the place to go was Hearn's Hobbies in Flinders Street, under the railway line in Flinders Street. And I went there and uh, Mr Keith Hearn, it was Mr Hearn then, but it was, was Keith Hearn, served me about 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. I went in on the train to see him. And he um, sold me a little kit called a Hearns Hobbies Hellcat, little control line model. And I went, took it home and came back the following week and asked him for a motor for it because I was starting to build it. And he put this little motor in my hand. It was an Elfin 1.49 diesel motor. And he closed my hand. He said, if you look after that motor, you'll make yourself a good aeromodeler one day. <laughs> <laughs> I think I reached it. <laughs> yeah. But that's true. That, that really happened. Yeah. What year was that? Uh, oh, um, 53, 54. Gee, you're old enough to be my father, Cliff. 1953, 54. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So 1953, 54, you jump on the train. All right. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we had a, a gentleman on last week talking about seeing gliders being flown at Elstwick Park, but Dendy Park was was my neck of the woods as well. And I saw planes flying there. And actually, one of the first flights I ever had with a glider was at Dendy Park. Okay. Yeah. So you get this, this model. All right. How old were you? Uh, about 11 or 12. I'm not quite sure. Got a photo of me holding it, and I look like I'm about 11. Yeah, okay, so you're pretty young. And then you get this thing home, and how did you find that first building experience? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I had a, a flat piece of cardboard under the bed, uh, just about three-foot by two-foot cardboard, 
with the plan laid out over it and I could pull it out and I worked on it on the floor and then at night I slid it back under my bed. Oh. Yeah, that was my workshop. Yeah. It was my workshop for quite a few years actually. Really? And what did your parents think? Um, thought it was fine because I just thought I'd better remind you I wasn't able to afford these things so I got a paper round at night and then I got taught by a very famous footballer, Carl Diederich, who had the morning round, paper round, and he wanted to go and play football, and I decided that I'd do the both rounds. So I did morning round and afternoon round just to get money for modelling. Oh, and, and, and Carl went on to be a pretty handy footballer, didn't he? He was pretty good, six foot four, six foot five, yeah. And, and you know what? He, he would not have been a good footballer unless you took up his paper round. Yeah, you should say that. <laughs> you, you should contact him and say, you need to thank me. <laughs> so I have run into him once, yeah. yeah. He remembers me. Yeah. Excellent. Well, okay, so and and what did the finished model end up like? Was it was it a pretty decent effort? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, it, was, um, it was tissue covered in the wings and a red painted fuselage and, yeah, it was good. It was good, good, Andrew, yeah. And then, okay, so you finish this model, you get this little, uh, this little motor, well, this is where I was lucky. Yeah, my yeah. mother said to me, "If you want somebody to, to come down and help you, let it go on the ground control line, you know, and and you want to let it go on the ground, I'll come down to the park with you." And he, we had a park closer than that called Hurlingham Park oh, in, yes. um, in East Brighton, and we went to Hurlingham Park, and my dad would look, would hold it while I re- and release it for me um, about five or six times, and we'd go home, come back another day. Always in calm weather, and I was doing at that age. I was doing inside and outside loops and figures of eight. Oh, really? And things like that. Yeah, with this little one and a half cc controller model. Yeah. So you were pretty much self-taught. Yeah, I was totally self-taught. Everything. Yeah. Did you have a few yeah. mishaps along the way? Hmm. Did you have a few mishaps? Uh, uh, no, no, not really. When we come uh, when it comes to learning to fly radio, um, the 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 park in Doncaster, where where the club is, uh, was a tip, and uh, and it had mounds of dirt there. And I was taking off, getting off all right, but landing, I'd hit a mound of dirt with my hustler one, hustler two, oh, you know, just a yeah. model, and um, would break the cowl. But I'd just go on flying it. Yeah, that's how I learned. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you. You, you're flying this control line plane and it sounds like you're pretty keen on the thing. Did you, you know, what was the next steps after getting that first model? You know, did you just wear it out or what happened? No, I, I, fa- I found out uh, that there was a model aeroplane club running in Sandringham and uh, I linked up with a fellow called Athel Holtham who was well known in those days for control line, beautiful model builder and he taught me to fly aerobatics properly with control line, and uh, we had a we were part of a club, um, and we had two circles which we mowed with. Uh, this is in Sandringham. We had two circles which we mowed with uh, hand mowers, and we we ran the club like that for a couple of years before I actually dropped out of modelling. Yeah. Oh, now okay. So let's get to that point. So obviously you're in your teenage years at this point in time, was it? Or yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, for the course, like everybody. <laughs> okay, let me guess. You hit the age of eighteen. Yeah, I was sixteen. Sixteen or so. Does it turn into wine, women, and song, as I call it? 
wine, women, and and um, cars. Oh, I was going to say cars, Cliff. Well, see, yeah. it's look. People that listen to this podcast know the story. We've heard it all before. There's something about cars and males. They get into yeah. cars. So, so okay. So you get in, you get into the car thing. What cars? Yes, I I am um, hot rodding, hot rodding, oh, and I and I linked up with um, some guys that were um, running hot rodding, uh, drag racing in Melbourne, and um, Max the Jersey was the name of the guy that was the boss of it all. And I got on the committee of the VA, the, the Hot Rod Association then, and we got the um, uh, the runway at Fisherman's Bend where they used to fly the planes out when they built them during World War II. Yeah. But we lost that years later because it became the Westgate Bridge, where the Westgate Bridge was, and we lost that. And uh, that's when I gave up my cars. Yeah, gave up drag racing. She got into drag racing. That's a good way to spend yeah, a lot of money. Oh, well, it was different in those days. We didn't buy our parts. We made them. You know, if you wanted a twin carving manifold, you just took a single carving and bored holes in it and put pipes on it and, and made it into a twin carving manifold. Well, I, I, I always remember I had a, uh, a – it was a, a flathead V8, you know, and had 24 studs on each side. And I found on the, fr- on the front ends of old forwards, I have a, a really nice, a one-and-a-half, two-inch long, bolt that screws onto the, the head threads and that makes the, he- the cylinder heads look great. And I went around to wrecking yards for about six months collecting these nuts. I'm <laughs> 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 still on each car. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And then so, got them chrome. <laughs> uh, see, you're, you're yeah. a true aero modeler. You don't mind tinkering. You don't mind making well, an effort. <laughs> tinkering's great. And I really do tinker. I, I'm not what you call a... A model. I'm not the greatest model builder by any means, but I've produced a few good model builders. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And we're going to talk about some of those people. But the but okay, so you get into the cars. What do you do after school years? You, you go and get a job, or what do you what do you yeah, end up doing? I stayed with the hot rodding coil. Yeah, I um yeah I had, I, I when I first started work, I was in optics, and I was studying to be an optician. Really. Yeah, and I oh, it was boring. <laughs> it was boring. I, but but I was in the city, and I had I was working. Um, I was given a job which was a bit different to optics. I was an instrument um, manufacturer, maker, and repairer uh, for eye doctors, and I used to do repairs for eye doctors' equipment, which gave me uh, a lot of a lot of experience working with metal. You know, I learned a lot with school. You know, a lathe and that. I went to a tech school. I learned a lot about instrument making. There's a lot when you do fine work, it's it's very technical, you know. And uh, yeah. some of the doctors there were fantastic. You know, uh, it was Professor Croft and Doctor Trotsky. These guys were really adventurous, and they would draw something and say, "If you could make it that way, um, I I think it'd be better." And I would make it for them, and they'd, they'd get me to adjust it. And, and I very very good experience. I was very lucky to get that. Yeah. Okay. Did you do that for a while? Yeah, I did that for about three or four years, and then I left OPSM because I got married. I needed more money. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, yeah. so when did the flying come back into it? So the uh, flying came back in one year after I was married. Okay. <laughs> once, once we had a once we had a kid at home, yeah. <laughs> our David, he's now fifty. Uh, he um he, he made me. You know, I stayed at home and had plenty of time to build a plane. So I built a 
I started off with a, another control line model, but quickly moved to radio after that. Yeah. So this would have been early 70s then? Yeah, yeah, 70, 71. Yep, 71. Okay. Yeah. And the model I built that came back, my big comeback at control line was a, an Australian design control line model called Angelique. And it had a lot of building in it, a lot of, a lot of curves in it. And it was a lovely model. I loved building that. And it flew very well. It flew very well. And where were you flying that? Uh, that was my, well, uh, I used to go, I used to go to the university not far from us where, where they had some mobiles where we never got into trouble for flying there. But the Doncaster Club has got formed, they formed a, a control line circle. And that was right for me because that's only one and a half kilometers from my home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to talk a lot about the Doncaster Club because you've you've been an avid you know a member for many many years. But I'm always interested to know that transition into radio control flight. No doubt, in that early seventies, radio control really was was becoming the thing to do because the gear was there. Look, I was down there one day at the Doncaster flying field, flying control line, and a chap by the name of Andrew Davies, who's a very, very good aeromodeler, he uh, he said, look, come over here and have a look at this model clip. You've got to fly radio, mate. And I went over and looked at it and I said, yeah, it's very pretty. And he said, look, I'll put it up. I'll just give you a quick fly. And he and he told me where elevator was because I had no trouble with elevator, Andrew, because, you know, being a control line flyer, elevator was easy. Mm-hmm. And I... And, and I flew this model and flew it around a few circuits and, and he took it over and I knew I was going to be a radio flyer from that moment. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. And, and I've had people tell me, I've had people tell me that, oh, no, you should have wires because you get a feel, you know, you get a feel of the model. Well, I honestly believe when you learn to fly and you're flying properly, it's like a rock-solid connection between you and the model. Yeah, that's true. I believe that. I believe, you know, you know how we can feel the subtleties of a model, you know, that's the differences right. between models and stuff like that. And, and that's coming through your fingers and, and your eyes and how, um, you know, that model responds. And, and yeah. it's really yeah. hard to explain, yeah. isn't it, when you say you can feel that model whilst it's flying? Yeah. And, I, and, and even to this day, I, I feel that. Yeah. I don't need the world's best model to fly. I just have to have a model to fly to be happy. Huh? That's true. Also, yeah, definitely that's true. Now, okay, so what was your first radio gear and plane? My first radio gear was an import. I had a, uh, I had. I then went into service stations when I got married, and a, and a customer at my garage. He and his wife were lovely people, and he was always over in Hong Kong. He was a pilot with um, uh, um, Ansett, I think. Yeah, but he was always in Hong Kong anyway. And he, and he, when I asked, talked about radios, he said, "I'll go to radar and I'll bring you back a radio." And he brought me back a a six channel Butaba radio, the old brown with the brown front, very. Yeah. Very popular radio in its day, and it was on the wrong frequency. And there was guys here that swapped it over for me, and, and it was it was fine. It worked fine. It was a six channel radio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what was the model? Uh, the model. My first model was this Hustler. Oh, that's um, right. Yep. Yeah, uh, and it was great. It was great, and it and I gave it away to one of the young fellows. I took fly with it, and uh, he moved it on and moved it on. Then one night I got a phone call. And this guy says, this young fellow says, Melifar, your hustle's a piece of junk. It weighs six pounds or something, brother. I said, but it's about the fifth owner, mate. I'm yeah. not the owner. <laughs> <laughs> it's been repaired and repaired. A bit more glue. It was a beautiful model. I must admit, it was, 
I, I, later on, I designed the hustler number three. I did the three, but yeah. that that number one with rudder with low diahedra was a very good rudder model to fly. Really was. Yeah, so that would have been like a three-channel kind of job. Rhonda, Rhonda Chastel in Queensland, I'm pretty sure, designed that model. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. His name's come up a few times as well. well his, yeah, the Chastel name is famous in pylon racing now, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, very yeah. famous. Yeah. Yeah, his son. Yeah. Okay, so you get this hustler and you get into the radio control. Now, you're at the Doncaster. So you joined the Doncaster Aeromodelers Club back then yeah. in the early 70s. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and there's... The club had been going a year or two before I joined it, and uh, um, and a lot of fellas dropped out because I think that there was a little bit too much competitive spirit from me to improve them and take them off into competitions, and I think a few dropped out very quickly. But the club rose from about 30 or 40 members to about 100 in the next four or five, six years to about 149, 150 members, I think, one stage. For, for anyone that's listening that doesn't know the Doncaster Aero Models Club, uh, it comes up often in this podcast because I've had so many people that started out at the Doncaster Aero Models Club or DAC as we call it, but uh, that the, the Doncaster Aero Models Club is a true suburban model flying club. It's literally in the heart of the city kind of thing in the suburbs, probably the most suburban. Club. So so it's, it, it, and it's not a big field, is it, at all? No, no. It's a, it's probably one of the smallest fields actually that people fly, but yeah. it's still quite a popular field, and purely because of its location and that location of the club really fostered a lot of people. And we'll talk a bit about that and your involvement. But so you talked about competition, and and you know we've had lots of different pilots that have come on and have been mentored by you and coached by you. Yeah. When you know when did you start to get involved in competition? <sighs> Um, well, I've been competing in drag racing previously, you see, so I was competitive, right? And if you know, and all the mate, all my mates that are competitive with anything are competitive with everything, you know. So I think it was pretty normal. Just and, and and people wanted to join the club because of that. So I think the early members dropped out, and a new crew came along one by one, and they're my friends today, still today, and I can, I can. You know, I'll come to that when you come to it. Yeah, <laughs> I made a lot of friends at Doncaster. But so you got into pattern flying, correct? Yeah, yeah. Aerobatics was my favourite. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why? Yeah. Why aerobatics? Oh, it's just you've got to practice it, and you've got you get better, and you can judge yourself. You can tell whether you're good or bad. You can, be, if you're honest with yourself, you can pick every mistake. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And if you're kidding us, if you're kidding yourself, you're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, that's that's very, very true. Yeah. Okay, so you, you get involved in that that pattern flying scene, uh, yeah. and you know they were the they were those speedster style of uh, pattern planes, weren't they? They were pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. Well, all the models were fairly fast in those days because they were smaller models. We had a different set of rules. We had a set of rules where um, you 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 could only use a ten cc motor, right? Yeah. So that's not a very big model aeroplane motor on today's standards at all. No. But we, the models were really well designed for that purpose, and and even today they stand. When when we have a, a vintage competition, people are shocked just how well they do aerobatics, you know. Mm. But yeah, they do fly faster. Yeah. So how involved did you get in that that scene back then? Oh, pretty involved. I wasn't on the committee of the association because I was running my own business, 
but uh, I was pretty involved with the flying and encouraging people into aerobatics as well. Yeah. 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 Now, who were who some of the people you competed against back in those days? Oh, <laughs> who, who would I? Well, you know, I used to compete against Tom Crosser and, and uh, Brian Green and, and uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff um, from uh, Shepparton, Jeff Tracy, Jeff Tracy from Shepparton. And uh, uh, I didn't, didn't fly against the fellow who ran craft. He passed away, unfortunately, uh, before I started doing the aerobatics. But uh, I flew against most of the good ones. And then as the years went by, um, some of the boys I was teaching just sort of went straight past me. I, I was only a, 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 I was a master for about two years. But after that, I just dropped back. I was, just couldn't get the practice in, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that you really got to be committed. So no doubt you were pretty busy working if you only yeah, in service stations yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Uh, did that that hamper your oh, your time? Did, with the yes, hobby? I can remember having to leave a competition to come back for stupid reason. You know, it's just uh, yeah, it's it's very hard, and, and you've got to make the dollar comes first, really. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I always say it should. You know, it is our hobby; it's not our career. I had a good thing running with my models, though. I would build most of my frameworks. But I used to, um, uh, I knew Bob, I, Bob Hurst still alive. Bob Hurst used to paint my models for me. And he was a magnificent painter. You know, he did it really well. He was never overcharged. And, and that way I could have a nice looking aerobatic model and I would keep one in store. I'd be, have one on the go all the time, you know, because I didn't have to paint them. Because that's the one thing that I cannot do. I cannot paint models very well. Yeah. But I do have some favorite models from those days. I had a, I had a fabulous arrow. That's the Wolfgang Matt arrow. That was a great aeroplane. Um, I had a Calypso towards the end, which was really good aeroplane. Sold it to Jeremy Randall, who is a, a mad keen uh, scale, large scale racer in Sydney. Jeremy Randall bought that, and I had I had some really nice models. Um, and the last model I had was made, it was designed by David McFarlane in Wollongong and it was um, um, called a, I called my Shanghai, it was called a slingshot, a slingshot. And that, that, okay, the slingshot yeah. would be my favourite model of all time. Mm. Okay. Now, okay, so the Doncaster Aero Modelers Club and um, the, the efforts that you went to to foster people's flying is always... Um, you know, we've had lots of chats about it over the years, but mm. you got involved with the club pretty heavily. Oh, didn't yeah, you? absolutely. I mean, we took fundraising to a new level in Aeromodeling for charity, not for not for the club, not one penny to the club to make out of it, but uh, we gave a lot of money away to charity. And towards the end when I felt that it was necessary because I thought there was some money gone missing, uh, I got Rotary in on it and that uh, that put many more thousands of dollars in the money and uh, we gave a lot of charity money away. Uh, it was this very, uh, very good place up here that try, uh, taught children or wheelchair-bound children, you know, and, and uh, we used to give a lot to them and one day she said to me, look, we've been taken over by the government, Cliff, it's no good giving us the money now. So then I I went to Rotary and Rotary spread it through the Rotary causes, which is always charity. And uh, we were getting eight, ten thousand dollars a day profit. Mm. Yeah, oh, really? and we were bringing in from doing we were, what? Uh, it, uh, one, once a year, uh, 
Yeah, I think we ran about. I think I ran about eight, eight air shows, eight or nine. Okay, wait a second. Wait a second. Slow yeah. down, Cliff. So you used to run an air show, and then what? Sell yeah, tickets to go and watch? sell tickets. And if anybody wanted to say, "Oh, you're in a public park, I don't have to pay," we'd let them in. <laughs> the majority yeah. of them, nearly all of them, paid and and bought stuff, and and you know, it was good. It was really good. We had good participation by the club. And the boys would all put a model, yeah. make sure they got a model for the combat. Even if they weren't in the doing a personal display, they'd make sure they bring something to tie a streamer on the back of and fly combat in front of the crowd. And we had, we had okay. six or seven models up each time in the combat. We'd had some superb mid-airs. So it must have been a pretty vibrant oh, club it back was. then. It really was. But it had great people. It really did, you know. Um, you know, you, you, you just see them as flyers now, but... Dennis Travisaris was a great member. Uh, Graham Kay was a fab. Uh, a lot of people don't know Graham, but he was a, a, a great modeler. We had some fabulous models, really, in the club. But were you ever president or what positions were you holding there? Yeah, I was president for about five or six years, but I was vice president for about eight or nine years. Okay, so long time on the committee. And so what was driving you? Because I, you, you told me in the past about some of the efforts that you did. You were really keen on getting people into the club. Yeah. Um, and tell to me a bit about some of the work you did around that and some of the activity. Yeah, um, I didn't do the typical things like try and start building nights or anything like that. I did it. I did it by telling them when they were learning to fly what where they could go with it. You know, um, a well-known name, young Jason Bruce. Jason Bruce was uh, a junior, uh, and unfortunately, his family didn't really have any spare money to to do it. And um, I just rounded up a few fellows, had a chat, and suddenly uh, Jason had three or four models, you know, and um, and then the support to make sure they flew well, and Jason became a really, really good aerobatic flyer, you know. He uh, and, and and he wouldn't have been able to do it uh, without the help, the help from the club. I call it the help from the club, but you know. And sometimes I would just speak to somebody and they'd do it, and, but basically I. Would just get make sure they had a model and and the engine that worked, and uh, and make sure they they had the disciplines of how to hold a radio, how to how to treat it, and, and you know how to stand still. And you know somebody said to me recently, they um, always remember me for saying teaching them how to come in and land. And all you do is you look over your left or right shoulder, you look straight ahead and look over your shoulder and you land. And I said that sounds like my words, mate. <laughs> yeah. Now you you told me one story about some of the the stuff you did with with you know kids getting into the hobby and um, rounding them up to come come for a fly. Tell us about that that sort of activity. Well, well getting kids to come in the hobby uh, came about really by having the air shows, Andrew, because the only advertising we did for our air shows. This is the best thing in the world. If you if all the money's going to charity, you can write the charity's name on your leaflets and take them to primary schools or no, or primary schools, and have them distribute the leaflets for you to the kids in the area. So the kids all take the leaflet home. The parents see that it's a model aeroplane show. That's all right. Oh, it's for charity. Oh, we'll go to that. And from that, we, oh, I just think Bruce Jenkins is one, lives around the corner here. That's how he got onto it. He didn't know the air show existed. But you know, got those leaflets at school, and and I and I would, I, I used to distribute those leaflets 
just by spending an hour, say twice, uh, in only about a, less than a week before the air show during school, and and go and speak to a headmaster, and they they would distribute them, but they wouldn't do it if you were going to make money out of it. Yeah, yeah. but they always they were great. That's how we feel. And so then. You'd get interest from kids saying, oh, I want to have a go, and they'd come well, to the club, and then what would you do? Sometimes it's their parents that join. <laughs> you know, because yeah. the parents have to come with them. They're the ones that pay. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and now the air show had a – that's that was my best rule on young people was was getting an interesting one. Um, it, 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 it really was strange how the, – the story about how it's an all-male hobby, and, and there was there's no doubt about it. Just flying model planes at an air show, the inquiries came from, say, 20 or 30 males and one girl or something, you know? It, it really yeah. is a mass. It really attracted guys. It really did. It, uh, I don't think there's any way. Well, the, the numbers show that, um, you know, and and you know we've got we've got some female aero modelers. Such yes, as yeah, they're or, usually connected um, with a, a male involved. flyer. A male flyer. Usually they've got a boyfriend or husband's a male. Yeah, <laughs> but there's got to be ways of bringing people into this hobby, um, and and that was the best way. I've never seen a better way. I've, I've talked about it to many people, but nobody. I've never heard of anybody putting leaflets at schools. But I also find that a lot of clubs won't do it for charity. That is true. I think. It is harder nowadays with kids that just been. Well, my kids have finished primary school now, but um, the schools are reluctant to spread the word about things like that because they get so many requests. Because a lot of businesses are, are like, "Hey, if we can get into schools, then they can do stuff." But um, but you've got to get, I think, a bit creative. You know, like like you said, if it becomes a charitable thing where the the Parents and Friends Association are involved in it as well, and there's it's a fundraising activity for the school. Even then, they're more inclined to to spread it. But um, yeah, it spreads like wildfire when you can get into the when to get into schools and and yeah, kids. you need the kids taking it home and reading it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's something to go and do, and families are looking for something to do. And Doncaster, because being so local for a lot of lot of people, easy to get to. Made made a lot of sense. That's why we sort of need it. I would have distributed probably a couple of thousand leaflets in in two hours of work, and you know it might have cost me one hundred and fifty dollars to have them printed up. <laughs> it's just nothing, you know. It's free virtually. Well, now Cliff, if you go and spend one hundred fifty dollars on a Facebook ad that's targeted to your local area, you'll get oh gee, you you you'll get. You get to even more people. That's it's just a different way of getting to it. But the concept yeah, is exactly the same. Just the true. channel is a bit different. That's but, true. but um, yeah, okay. So, but I think I think you're downplaying your involvement because there are so many people that I've spoken to, um, that I know that I've interviewed, who say, "Oh yes, I was at Doncaster. Cliff McIver taught me how to fly." Now, you've always been very involved in teaching people and mentoring yes, people, haven't you? Yes, yes, yeah. And and I try not to be a know-all because. I try and be come go to their level at that stage, you know. Can you understand? Yeah. Yes, and I think that has been like you've rung me up to give me some advice, and I always said I always appreciate you telling me, and and you don't do it in a condescending way, or you know, this is what you should be doing. I think you have naturally got that ability to nurture um, people, and that's why everybody that you've taught 
that I've met is always your name is put on a pedestal. Like, you know, oh, I can rattle off names and I'm going to rattle off a few names shortly of people that you've, you've taught. But, you know, were you, were you always involved in that, that, that teaching aspect of the model from the early days at Doncaster? Yes. Yeah, yeah, because um, I was only in the club for a year and I became president. Mm. And I had a had a great um, uh, person on my committee, uh, Brian Mason, who uh, was a wonderful, he was a, a real doer. You know, he could get things organised well. And uh, between the two of us, we raised that membership very fast. Yes. Yeah, we did. And but why? Why do you think the membership increased so much? Was it on the back of those the air shows? I think, or? I think it's you gotta you gotta have fun all the time. You gotta have something for fun, not not laughing at jokes all the time. Necessarily, but you gotta really enjoy it. And if you've got them flying their own models, you gotta remember all these people were building their own models, so they were enthusiastic. They you, when you build a model, you become enthusiastic. And yeah. you're You've and now, what's it, what's it if a person spends a couple hundred dollars on a model and crashes and walks away? It doesn't worry him. But if you built the model and had a broken wing, you'd repair the model. You know? Yeah. So I think I think they were the better they were the better days of modelling. Um, you know, the best days of modelling was the fifties. Uh, they say that the fifties was the best, and I was involved with that through the fifties a little bit. But I, I reckon. But why was it, why were the fifties the well, best? Well, uh, World War Two pilots, uh, World War Two soldiers, and, and uh, people came out and and didn't have much to do. And model airplanes was reasonable that you could do it, you know, with free flight and control and that. And that and that's why it really went up. It, it really expanded all over. There was people flying in parks all over Australia, everywhere, at one stage in the fifties. So, so it was a common sight that you'd go down to a local park and someone would pull out a yeah, plane. Yeah, 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 and always noisy. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody complain? Yeah, not not where I flew, but um, uh, but yeah, yeah, lots of complaints, and and councils would just jump on it and ban modelling. That's all they would do straight away. They just ban modelling, and that's where they we lost all the fly, all the parks around Australia were chopped off from modelling because of the noise. And uh, it was a bit sad because, you know, um, OS Motors had bought out motors with mufflers already and and it was really the Cox motors, the noisy little screamers that people hated. They really hated it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, more people came into the hobby in those days with those little Cox things, which I never had anything to do with at all, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I remember you used to see them at hardware stores, the little Cox 049s, yeah. PTs, yeah. and uh I wish I had one now because they're worth a bit, <laughs> but they're worth more than what they were back to go and buy. I think I remember they were like ninety nine dollars at a hobby shop or something like that. You probably remember. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, so so you, you spend a lot of time teaching people and that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, what was the basis of your your teaching? Though? What were you trying to get people to do? You know, now I'm now I'm going to say something. Please do. I am still training people to fly occasionally on a buddy box, right? I can guarantee you, if you're a good flyer, you do not, it, the person who's instructing does not need to have a buddy box. What I did, what I've done with flyers, I, I can only teach mode one because that's what I fly on. I can't teach mode two. That's, but, but with one radio, I fly the model and I put it, he's not, the person's on my right hand side, I put the radio in his hands, put his fingers on the sticks, and then I put my fingers on his, from side, I lean across. 
and I put my fingers on top of his fingers. And I and I steer it round. It's and it becomes a bit painful leaning across, you know. It's a bit rude if it was a woman, but it's it it with a little guide, you can do this and, and you fly it round for a lap or two, and he automatically then knows you don't use the sticks to the corners, you know? You, you, you've got a nice, delicate, I've got a, a good touch. I'm, I'm a bit firm, but I'm steering it around like a, like a tractor, you know, and, and around the circuit. And then, and then what I do is I just take, take my finger, not, not away, but take my finger off one of the sticks, maybe the elevator. And he flies around, he uses the elevator. And then I hold him and then, then I take the other one off and he uses the aileron. And we fly around for about four or five laps. And I can guarantee you, I've got my hands off the sticks, and he does twenty laps. All right. Now, the buddy box doesn't give you that feel. That's true. Yeah. So that's interesting. That's just the thing I know, and 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 never taught anybody with a buddy box ever. Yeah, I was never. I I just always struggled with the concept of trying to. And now you've got wireless systems that you can connect, and you can have someone on mode two and someone on mode one, and all this kind of stuff. But I've never. I've never even attempted to try to do it, and I was I, I was taught I taught myself pretty much on a simulator, and then I had a bit of training after that. But um, okay, so then, but w- when it came to then say now move on, someone's gone from now being able to take off land fly circuits. All right, you know what what were you trying to get the pilot to focus on? What were the key key things that you would get them to focus on? If if he announced that he likes doing aerobatics and he wanted to do it. You know, he's got to have that drive. Then I say to him, well, there's a couple of very positive things you've got to learn to do, and most people can't do it. And the first thing is they can't actually fly straight. So you've got to learn to fly straight in a straight line, not wandering around over the place, you know. And the other thing is you've got to learn to fly vertical, know what vertical is, because when you're doing aerobatics, you're always going up and down, you know. Mm. And, and some... You go up with the next flight and you and you watch him and and I'd say take your hands off the sticks you know and you can see it going down put a couple of clicks, put a couple of clicks of up elevator in and you and you get him to fly the model got the model flying straight and then he starts to relax on the sticks and the model flies through the sky in a straight line at the same height all the way through and from that point on you'll never see him wandering around like a you know wallowing around yeah. And I think that comes from having models that are not over controlled too. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've 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 watched you at the field and, and you can look at someone's plane flying and you can see what they're doing from an input perspective, which shows the level of experience that you've got and, and you know how to tidy tidy their flying up very, very simply. Yeah, yeah. And and, and you can actually see them doing the same the, the little thing they're doing wrong the most. Is in is in in almost every manoeuvre. That's interesting because if you if you get you know they pull tight and they 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 oh yeah or you they pull up and they pull on the elevator they pull a little bit of rudder with it and you just say look you're very you're you're pretty good here but look you're just knocking that rudder as you go around the corner just make sure you don't you don't turn use the rudder as you pull up elevator you know and. Uh, and they learn from that, and then all their manoeuvres improve. You know, it's it's yeah, just, sometimes just little things. Yeah, and they if you don't jump on it, they they practice their mistakes. You know, 
Yeah. Were you were you the kind of instructor that you were quick to jump in and say, okay, we've got to iron out that problem that you're starting to develop now? Or yeah, uh, I'm afraid so. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It probably probably is better to do that than let them develop the habit. If if I found a person that's not going, to, if I'm teaching a person who's never going to be the world's greatest flyer at all, um, I go easy on them and just make them learn to fly around, you know, and and I even set their models up differently to other people's, you know. Set them up to fly smoothly on their own. Yeah, yeah. Well, the um, there's a few names that come to mind that um have mentioned you now, and I'm just going to ask you of your opinion of these people, you know, because you were there in their their young days and taught them how to fly more often than not. Now, the first one is a gentleman that we recently had on the podcast who just became, got one second place at the Scar World Championships, <laughs> David Law. He mentioned your name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, David. Oh, David. David was. I knew David was going to be a success, not just in modelling, but in his life. He he showed great skill at. He went to Kerry Grammar, and uh, the woodwork teacher there. I used to do a, con- a control line course. We used to build these little stick trainers there. He said, "This boy won't build a stick trainer. He wants to build a Mustang. I know a Spitfire." Yeah, really. And I met David. David wouldn't build a control line um, stick trainer. He built them Spitfire, and it flew. And it flew. And and he, he just, you know, he just was, I, he was the most pleasurable person at a young, as a young age. He was a, a real go-getter. Oh, he, he's got drive. He's got an amazing amount of drive. And he's still got that amount of drive, you know. If you knew what he goes through, David Law, what he goes through to get to that world championships and the cost of doing it, and it's all on himself virtually, and oh now he's and he's happy now because he's got a, a wife that's flying with him and that's fantastic. It really is. Melissa's a, a, a great attribute to David. But David was the easiest person to teach the flying. But I'll tell you something about his construction. Yeah. He he didn't actually use sandpaper for you know like he would saw a piece of wood and leave it all chalky, you know, like yeah, and, and he's he's. In the construction inside his models was really, really messy for quite a few years, but he always managed. He always managed to smooth them out on the outside and make them pretty good. And 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 he always painted well. He always painted well. And um, he's um, and he's he's been at the top of scale in Australia for so long. You know, yeah, he has, he's, he's, he? won, he's won every trophy multiple times. He's not. He's not. You no, know, and you can't. You can't say a thing against him because he he helps all the people in scale now too. That's you know? true. That is true. He enjoys that part of it as well. So, yeah, he's my number one. But I taught him to fly. Yeah, and then he learned learned to fly radio very quickly. So I, I don't ever remember him not not flying actually. Yeah. yeah. Now there's there's a whole bunch of people in from the pattern scene. I had Paul Marlin on who mentioned oh, yeah. your name. Well, Paul. Yeah, Paul's a great flyer. Yeah, yeah, Paul Marlin. I gave Paul a start, yeah. Paul was uh, yeah, already in uh, model car racing. Paul was very good at model cars too. And uh, Paul went right up into Masters. And he, he's, yeah, he's one. Yeah, I forget about Paul. Don't see him much. He's no, no, he's, he's back. He's, got, he's on motorbikes now. Him and I were into motorbikes and we were yeah. into car racing together and but he's back. He's back flying. He's um, you know, he's he's getting involved a little bit more. But he oh, he'll good. go up and down. But 
but he you're, he mentioned you and said that you know you gave him the start. Now Michael Andrisic was he involved um, back in those days in Doncaster as well? Michael Andrisic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking to Michael last Sunday. We were racing together. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Now he he apparently he was quite a good flyer in his day back in the donk. Well, he's still a good pilot yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't. I don't think I taught him originally. I improved his flying. Yeah. I think I think he could fly. I think I met him when he was flying. You know, but yeah, but that's yeah. I think, I think so. Yeah. Oh, that's a long time ago, Michael Lance. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, one of our mutual friends, Adrian Corro, who who's a pretty yeah, good three D pilot. Did you teach Adrian? Uh, I taught he and his brother, yes. I taught them as much as anybody else did, yeah. We, we shared it around a bit at that stage because we had people. They're all mates, you know. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I actually I had a lot to do with teaching Adrian to move on, yeah, because to move on and get good, you know. What about uh, David Gibbs? Was he, he was involved? Uh, just on Adrian, I think Adrian is the most, is the most, the smoothest, nicest 3d flyer i've ever seen not yeah. rough, not ready this I, I watch 3d and you never see the wings level it, it, and when they stop on the on a on the knife edge they they're leaning over you see them straighten it you know it's you know what there's not many you you are correct the, the way the 3d flying has gone it's become very aggressive um faster more you know sudden ugly, movements ugly and ugly ugly we have the European style and the American style, and there's Jace Ducier from the US can do it. His precision is phenomenal. Yeah. That's one person. It's one person that, that that he's just raised the bar to the next level, and there's a clear daylight between him and other yeah. people in that aggressive sort of style of flying as far as the precision goes. You go over to Europe, and Europe are still flying not as aggressively, more to the music, but Adrian definitely, I've spent you know, a fair bit of time with Adrian flying, and... He is. He he probably comes from that generation before the current generation, That's where right. it was. You know, um, precision was big, and and you know, just some of the fundamentals, like you said, if you're in knife edge, you're in knife edge. You're not, you know, sort of a sloping over kind of kind of thing. So, and he's still he's still a keen modeler. He's moved up to the Gold Coast now, and yeah. um, yeah. going to get flying up there. But uh, who else? What are some of the other names? Uh, oh, that, well, that you got through. You mentioned David Gibbs there. David Gibbs is a well-known flyer. I taught David. David and I had some fun learning. Um, we, he or I, one of us flew into a tree. We might we have argued about it for years before he was <laughs> Well, that's told. not hard. Don, he Don Cast is not hard. I reckon he would anyway. But no, David Gibbs a lot of fun. Uh, Fernando Monke. Fernando, people in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's involved the patent scene. Yep. Yeah. Um, oh, Dennis Travisaris. Yeah. Oh, he's a, he's a he's one of our he's world champion uh, pilots. Yeah, yeah. And Jason Bruce I mentioned earlier, he, he became a great flyer. Um, and <laughs> Boz Student improved his flying. Boz was another one. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't think of their names offhand, but. When, when we, do, we do have a, a, a not an annual thing, but every so often we go out as a group, and it's rather nice. The old Doncaster group. Graham Clay was another person who who enjoyed his aerobatics, but not many people would know Graham. Uh, yeah. Okay. So there's been a there's been a fair few there. Uh, now, the other side that I want to talk about is you ended up owning a hobby shop. 
called Hawthorne yeah. Hobbies. And and people yeah. know Cliff from Hawthorne Hobbies, and I really want to have a deep dive into this. Tell us about the whole hobby shop experience. When, how did you get into that? How did it come about? Well, it came about because I was about 42 from memory, and um, I I got sick of wet weather. At a, I had three uh, – two. I had three, but I had two service stations. And um, you go from one to the other in the rain, on the concrete, on the cold concrete, and my body, and I lifted too many gearboxes in and out, you know, things like that, helping mechanics, and I had a bit of a back injury. And I just couldn't handle the wet, cold thing. And my father was doing my bookkeeping for me, and he was retired. My wonderful dad, he helped me at the hobby shop too. This is in the garage. And I said to Dad, oh, look, we'll get out. We'll get a shop where we can you – know, I'll, I'll get a hobby shop where we can have carpet on the floor and an air conditioner and heaters. And, and it made all the difference. And really, once I got into the – that it was obviously my health could just improved out of sight. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So did you start Hawthorne Hobbies or did you buy it? No, no, no. Hawthorne Hobbies was started by Ron Blaskett, uh, Jerry G. Uh, oh, really? Now, he yeah. was – yes, he was a – a, a very famous entertainer here. Yeah, in uh, Channel 9, yeah. Yeah, Ron Blaskett. So he started it? Yeah, yeah. He started the club for his son, which was Peter Blaskett. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Don, he started the Doncaster club, did he? He put money in and he had a guy running the shop for him and it didn't work. And when they shut okay. it, yeah. it was shut for about two years. Okay, yeah. And then I walked, I, I just went down, still had Hawthorne Hobby written on it, and I went down there one day and the guy was in the back there fiddling around. I said to him, oh, you know, what are you going to do with it? Oh, I don't know. And uh, I said, look, I'll, I'll give you 100 bucks a week rent. I'll take it over for a while. Well, I won't go into that too long, but I, it did. That was it. I'm taking, I'm taking on Hawthorne Hobbies, all right? Because now, I was, was this the original, one. was this the original shop, the one? Oh, yeah, the same the road in 733, Burwood Road, Hawthorne. Yeah, yeah, it's, yep. that, it's the shop. And and for a year or two, I paid him the rent until one day a lady rang up and said, look, I'm I'm his wife and uh, uh, I actually own it. <laughs> he didn't oh. own it. So she put me on a, a, a still a low rent, like about $400 a week or something, you know, and but it was a lease. And, and, and we got along great for year, years and years and years. And... Uh, uh, and then, uh, you know, it's, it's, so you had to you had to buy all the stock, get everything up and running again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was all right. Oh yeah. Oh, we had to clean the place out. It had junk everywhere. It was I had to go to the police and show that there was stuff in there that I wanted, didn't want it to be thrown out in my name. I went to the police and said, "Look, come and have a look at this." They weren't interested to have a look at it, but we'd note it down that you, you're cleaning out a, a residence. It was really bad upstairs. Really. Yeah, not sure what went on there. Yeah, didn't want to know. Okay. But uh, we cleaned it all out, got rid of it. But uh, Hawthorne Hobbies, I was there 25 years. 25 years. Now, what was – so what, what year was this when you started? Would have been like... I think it was um, 82. Okay. And what was it like running a hobby shop in those days? It, it wasn't hard. I I actually – oh, I don't know whether I should say that. No, I will say it. No, no. Don't say it. Say it. Um, a shop, actually two shops, were I couldn't compete against them. I couldn't match their prices. Couldn't match them. And then are they still in existence? Um, no, no. no. Oh, we'll mention them. Come on, it was no, 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 no. 
and I, 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 I decided I'd, I'd work it out. Yeah. And I went to order. I went to order something from. Um, I went to order something from uh, uh, in South Australia. It was a hobby, a wholesale error, you know. Um, forget the name of the company, and, but and, and he said, "Look, we don't want to deal with you. You're too small a customer. Go to go to Hobby Hanger, <clears throat> see them. They're the agent for it." And I went down to the Hobby Hanger and realised was a guy I didn't like much at all. And I'd known him a few years a bit through modelling. And um, uh, he said, um, oh, he said, uh, why don't you do as I do? And that was they were printing out or, or had these private school order books and they were using order forms from the private school to order their stock. 20 uh, tax free, 22% tax. <laughs> so, yeah, they had a bit of an advantage over me. Anyway, yeah. um, one, shut, one shut down about a month after I um, told the authorities. Yeah. Because it was, le- it was legit. It was not fair. It wasn't fair on me. If, it was, you know, it was, if I was doing it, I wouldn't be able to. You know, no, it's, le- it's illegal practice, anyway, really. This guy, this guy closed his. Business down uh, within a th- three or four weeks or something of, of me ringing somebody and looked off to Western Australia to live and lived out his life there. And the other guy, um, uh, it was the start of the, the breaking down of um, the particular shop and it just became a disaster shop. And, and uh, but yeah, but they were cheating the tax department. And so then it became pretty easy to run a hobby shop, then. Yeah, well, okay. And so, and did you eventually end up having an account that you could buy stuff? They thought you were big enough? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, within weeks, I said, well, I'm not going to use your products at all. <laughs> yeah. And straight away, oh, yeah, no, they, they were trying to make that place the wholesaler in Melbourne, you know. Oh, come on. Not my opposition, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, tough. Yeah, no, they, no. They, I I dealt with them. Southern models, Southern model supplies. I dealt with them for many years. Yeah, right through right to the end. So and, back then, there's no internet, right? So people no. obviously there were people coming into the shop a lot. Well, yeah, we had our mag- we had Airborne magazine, and we had a, a couple of others over the years, you know. Uh, and I ran I ran an ad in every magazine. Yeah, so I paid a few dollars out in ads, but. Only quarter page ads, not 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 full page ads or anything silly like that. And I found a way of making a very good income, or very a, a very regular income. And I think you probably know what it was. Do you know what it was? I had an advertisement for OS spare parts, and I said on if I can't if I can't get it, you can't get. It. Oh, that's not. Yeah. If you can't get it, I can get it. Or you can't. If you can't get it, I I can't get it. Yeah. But I will supply, you know, and that that ad worked for years, and and it made me very well known for for OS engines, and I sold a lot of engines, believe me. Yeah, I sold way way more engines of OS engines uh, for um, for the size of my shop. Yeah, yeah, mainly post. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And like, without divulging numbers, because now, like. Oh, if I had to run a hobby shop today, I doubt whether I could make money out of it. I just don't know how it would work. But back then, was it a bit more lucrative a business because there was more traffic or, or what? No, the margins were never good. 
Um, I had a saviour. I had another product I used to sell. Do you know what the other product was that I used to sell? No. It's kites. I, oh, yes, yes, yes. I've had a lady down in Tasmania who's been making, who's, who made me high-quality high um, carbon fibre-rotted stunt kites, high-performance kites, and they sold like you wouldn't believe, right? And I was making good margins out of kites, and those margins made all the difference to the hobby, you know, it, to, the, to, the, to the shop. And I sold kites for nearly the whole time I was there, yeah. Kites and the window had kites all over it because that's you know, true. I remember the, that the era modelers don't see your front window, they don't all live in Hawthorne. <laughs> but people going by, oh, there's the kite shop, it's just we will buy our kites, you know. And, and were you doing mail order? Yeah, oh, all the way through, yeah, yeah, through the post office, yeah. Straight now, I've heard, office. I've heard stories though that, um, you, you didn't tolerate fools very kindly when they come to your shop. It was almost like, you, you, you know, if you were allowed to buy from Hawthorne Hobbies and come into the shop, you almost like, you know, you had the, the, the tick of approval from Cliff. Is that true or not? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, um, I don't want to say too much about that, but because that's totally deliberate because, you see, not everybody can be your friend. So you, why do they bother coming with somebody if they don't like me? Why do they bother coming? Yeah, I I didn't I I I made uh I made a fair share of money that I could exist on from the service stations. I, I and and the hobby shop was making money. Yeah, the hobby shop never failed to make money. And 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 I and you know I I had guys that I had to ask them never to come in. I had guys that would open up a box, a kit with about two hundred parts in it, and start pulling it out of the box. You know, and I. I say, you're buying? He said, oh, no, just looking. I said, well, somebody's going to buy that. And then they turn on a turn, you know? And I say, well, look, the best thing is you don't, you know, shop somewhere else. But, you know, the rudeness of some of these people that have learned to hate me, I can tell you some stories about them, believe me. They don't realise that I recognised everybody that came in the shop. If he came in more than once, I recognised you. Yeah. What about, I find a challenge with with hobby shops is, those passionate hobbyists that just want to come in and chew up your time whilst you're running the business, like that would sit there for hours. How did you handle those? Look, look, I had, look, I've, I've had some of the best builders in the country in the shop, and you know, no, why has he come in and buy product and talk stuff? David Law would come in and buy product and talk stuff. Um, the model builders, you know, uh, I, I, I had, oh no. I, that wasn't that wasn't a very big worry for me at all because I they I either turned them into really nice people, nice customers, or I just said, you know, like maybe you can find what you're looking for elsewhere, you know. And I have thrown, I have actually thrown a couple of guys out of the shop. I had a guy come into my shop. I had a guy come into my shop and he saw a customer looking at this lovely canopy. I used to buy these beautiful bubble canopies in sheep form from a guy in Western Australia, and he's looking at this bubble canopy, and it's about eight and a half, nine inches long, and he says, that's just, oh, look, Cliff, I think I'll take the, the two of them. And this guy walks over to him and says, oh, I don't know what you're on about, mate. Look, all you do is you get some clear plastic and you get a broomstick and you, you warm it up and you just push it into shape and make your own canopies, mm. right? And the guy turned around to him and said, what an arrogant 
<laughs> sorry, sorry. What an arrogant person you are. You're standing in a shop where he's got them for sale for about $4.50 each, you know. Yeah. Why don't you just get out? Well, that that was a guy who joined the Doncaster Club, and I can't stand him, you know. He's gone. But that customer, that customer knew me well, actually. <laughs> so, so did you work, was it the shop open six days or what were the hours? Yeah, five and a half days. Five and a half days. You yeah, did it for, what, 20-something years? We, when we first opened for years, it was open till 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock on a Friday night. Friday oh, night. really? Friday night shopping was big. Yeah. And did, did you have any staff? Uh, only my family, only my boys, yeah. And my dad, my father. Yeah. My father was really good. He um he he worked for me part time from the service stations and the shop uh for about thirty years. Oh, did he? <laughs> yeah. Did he like the models as well? Retired. No, he just loved seeing me have success. <laughs> oh, he enjoyed my, you know, I made a big sale. He was very proud of that. <laughs> I didn't get excited. Oh, he was good. A bit was of a good. bit of a sport for him then. Yeah, he's a very popular man too. You speak to any of those people, that, you know, the Paul Marlins and the Dennis and that, they, they all knew my father. He was a terrific guy. Yeah. Tell us, who was the best customer? You know, I've had some good customers when I was selling model aeroplanes. You know, our friend Con Gabriel, he was a good customer. He kept on buying two of yeah. everything because he was, I think he had a plan to crash them. And so he'd come in and say, yeah. I have two of them. Yeah. It, people didn't buy because they were building People didn't buy as much. You, you, you know, they came in for they came in for a hundred bucks worth of materials or something, and 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 they came in regularly. Oh yeah, I I I couldn't I couldn't name them because I can't think of them. But I, I remember I remember a guy who was a boat guy, and he he spent a lot of money at my shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but other people like I had customers, my mail order customers. Would uh, ring me and give me all the Dubrow numbers and 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 the sizes of the wood and and the wires and the, and a couple of rolls of covering or something and they'd be doing that regularly and I I, I they just became close friends you know and and but but I don't think there was anybody that we didn't have money to waste in those days. What what year did you finish? Uh, fifteen years ago. Uh, fifteen years ago. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, so you, you sort of saw that ARF era come into into the industry. Yeah. How did I that think, impact the, the business? I, at first it was not good because the models weren't good. The models fell apart at first. They were awful. But when they got when they improved, oh, I thought it was all right. I thought it saved me teaching people to build. <laughs> and did you, did sales go up or what happened? Uh, no, not really. Not the dollar value. No, no. No, not in dollars. No, not really. No. You've got to remember the materials, when you add up all the materials, it adds up to more than what an ARF costs. Yeah. 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 No, I don't. It didn't take over quickly. It didn't. The the ARF's been around a long time. Um, there, was, there was sometimes people canned them when they were actually well built and they were built light, you know, um, because they built heavy, you know, so they canned it, but not now. Everything's above. What uh, was uh, what was your highest selling product? Do you think? What do you sell most of? Oh, oh, highest dollar value. OSN. Oh, no, no OS- quantity. Quantity. What were people buying? Um, 
Oh, I'd buy, I would sell, a club would buy, I used to weigh my one and a half mil balsa for control on stunt clubs and things, you know? Yeah. And, and and they would buy like three or four, five hundred sheets at a time. Oh, jeez. For the members. And they'd, they'd have a 50 each, you know, for building the next couple of models because no, they, couldn't buy, they couldn't buy good quality wood with a grain in it that was as light as what I had because I, I used to know the lady at the Bolsa place down in Oakley and I got first choice. Yeah. Oh. Now, um, these are good little insights, Cliff. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> Those are little insights. Um, okay, then Aeroflight kits because I speak to so many people. How many Aeroflight kits Aeroflight, do you reckon yourself? Yeah. yeah. Aeroflight. Did you sell a lot? Sold all those. <laughs> well, they, did they did they walk out the door? Because everybody I know had an Aeroflight kit at some point in time back in the day, back in the eighties and nineties. Well, well, um, yeah. Well, see, Hearn's hobbies, the real Hearn's hobbies, have gone out of business by the time Aeroflight got going in my world. Um, uh, so, but before that, I mean, the reason Victoria really. The way I look at things myself over my life, Victoria is really the best state to be an aeromodeler. There was a lot of clubs, a lot of clubs compared to other states, um, and um, why was it the best? Oh, yeah, because the Hearns brothers, they had, they were manufacturing kits in a factory. They had a factory in just, in, just out of Box Hill there, Surrey, Hills, sorry, Hills, and they were producing something like uh, 20 rubber-powered models, 15 gliders, and about 20, 25 control line models in kit form, mm. right? So they they supplied the market really well, and, and they went very – they the way I told you Keith, Keith, Keith mm-hmm. Hearn treated me, they treated everybody like that. They were very good, and I think – that's what made Victoria a better place to be an aeromodeler early because they came out of the war and they got stuck into it, those guys. They they, they ran a good show down there. They really did. Yeah. Oh, look, you know, I don't think that the hobby would be what it is without the Hearns oh, in I Australia. Know. I know. I'm very, you know, I never did any business with them at all, but I've uh, had all the respect in the world, especially Keith. Keith Hearn, he died with leukemia many, many years ago. Yeah. Well, I met his brother, one of his brothers. Well, Bruce, who, who has, Bruce or Jack. Yeah. Jack, I think, was the last one to go. <clears throat> yes, that's right, yes. Now, I met Jack at an indoor night down at uh, at the indoor centre there in Doncaster away, at that way, yeah, yeah. and he was in his 90s. And yeah. I felt like I was in, in the midst of royalty uh, yeah. You know, yeah. that was a, a, a true Hearn. And, yeah. and I had a chat with him and he was saying to me how, yeah, he still went flying. He used to like flying this foamy plane at the local park, you know, radio control kind of thing. Um, and it, actually, you, it's come full circle because my brother's a pilot and my brother has flown with um, one of the grandsons, one of the Hearns' yeah. grandsons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's still he's still going and flying full size, that kind of thing. So, um Okay, so uh, and what about the electric era when the electric um, planes came in? What did you think of that? Well, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> but, again, we didn't have – the models weren't any good. When they first did it, the models weren't any good. You know, the only way you could make a model good was to to create something yourself, like a, a known glider or something, and um, and put power it up with electrics. And uh, 
that was all right, but there wasn't any good packages on the market. When I first opened the shop, it was very short on it. But um, by the time I left there, the gliders were good. There was some good powered gliders, and they and they really took over the market, didn't they? Those um, those those ARF ones, yeah, they took what over. What about? Did you do RC cars as well? I did a little bit of that when um, when um, Mike Farnham uh, and Tony got onto a thing called Mugen Cars. I sold yes. all the drive Mugens until they were you know, fashion, and they were good because I could repair them so easily in the back of the shop. You know. Mm. So did you provide a bit of a repair service and things like that out of the shop? With the moving cars, well, if a person a person would buy the car and if he break it diff or something, he wouldn't know how to start to pull it apart. So I say, well, look, I'll fix it for twenty bucks labour, you know. So I just and I fix it half an hour, you know. <laughs> they good little screwdrivers that screwed screws out quickly and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The um. Okay, I had another good question in mind, which I thought has escaped me, but it'll come back. Okay, so there was yeah, – were you flat out? It sounds like you would have been busy all the time. I was busy. I was never really quiet. People used to think I – I used to make out, I used to sleep at the shop a bit, you know, when there's no customers, but I always had things on the go, never without things on the go. A, a, a really good one I had, and I, I see it I see it even today, is I – you can buy you could buy toolboxes and sell them. You could buy them already made and painted, and you could sell them. But people didn't buy them much because they didn't know what to do with it. So what I used to do was say that you buy a starter motor, a power panel, a battery, some leads, and um, and a bottle of fuel, and I'll I'll set up the toolbox for you and wire it up. And it takes about half an hour to wire up a toolbox. <laughs> it's really an easy job. But they don't know how to do it easily, so I would I would do that, and not not charge them any labour, but charge them for the two hundred and fifty three hundred dollars worth of parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's was an added service. That was great, you know. Well, I and think th- I think that's what's missing in the hobby scene now, and I don't think it's going to come back. Where it's more transactional. You come in, you buy it, you walk out. That gone are the days where the person that owned the shop was an avid hobbyists and and knew their stuff that could actually get their hands dirty you know because I, I can't think of one hobby shop where i could uh, desert aircraft australia up in queensland you could walk in there and ian howard could look at a motor for you and that kind of thing but but i i don't think there's that that i think that era is gone yeah yeah i think so yeah yeah and the other one thing i did do to keep my shop going well was and i really insisted if you're going to fly model airplanes you must join the club you'll just become a um, um, another another thing in your life, just throw it aside because you won't have much luck without joining a club. And I used to really push that joining the club business. And uh, some you know these people that gave me a hard time, most of those, if they look back at themselves back there, most of those sort of people weren't in clubs. Mm. It's, it's definitely a different breed. That you can see it in in um in even people that um. You know, join clubs. You know, the MAAA style of club versus some of the other, you know, private sort of entities that have come about that started out flying at local parks together and then try to formalise. It's a different demographic. There's there's those that don't want any rules and structure, and then they end up blowing themselves apart because there is no there are no rules and structure. And they think, well, why why can't I take off in any direction whilst the twenty other planes are in the air, kind of thing. Whereas we know that discipline of the structure of a club works best and, and uh, for everybody, for everybody really at the club. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the VMAA, uh, the MAAA clubs, have always just been that little bit more organised than any other group that gets together. And uh, even today, people trying to do that. I mean, if I was rich, I'd love to have my own flying field. Um, I'd uh, be there with you. I'd be your best mate. I might let you in, Andrew. (laughs) Oh, come on. I'll come and cut the grass with scissors to make sure everything's perfect. You're in. You're in. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And how did it go, though, having the hobby shop and then with the the, the stuff that you're doing at Doncaster and that tie-up? Did um, Well... The early days with the air show once a year in March, you know, the uh, on the Moomba Day, you know, um, that uh, that kept me popular with most of the club members. Uh, there were still the sticky ones that wanted to be mouthy, and you know, oh, there was a guy. Oh, I've just worked my little guts out getting an air show running. And and my father and mother and father are standing behind a, a guy, member of the club, who was talking to his parents, and he's starting every sentence off with an I. I organised that. And I organised that. I got the insurance. I did this. I did that. And my father leaned over, tapped him on the shoulder and said, what a load of bullshit, mate. I'm his father. I'm Cliff McCormick's father. And he just fucking fell. You know, he didn't have a And his parents... And he's, yeah, they were, they were his parents with him and his wife. They all you know, shrugged their shoulders, and <laughs> he, had, he had put nothing into the show at all, right? But was taken the glory. I love getting them. I love catching them out. Well, there's, I, I always find that you know, you and I have been around clubs long enough, and we've seen the different personalities in this. You know, uh, I love psychology, and I, and one of the questions that I ask myself often is. Why does someone behave like that? And I, I feel that in in, dif- in different circles, whether it be work, uh, flying clubs, car clubs, all that kind of stuff, you have certain personalities that might have insecurities and, and they'll go to a club and try to get involved to for ego or to, to become something that that strokes that ego and, and that self-importance where yeah. it's all just a load of rubbish. And... Um, you know, I've you know, I've been on committees for car racing and things like that, and often I find that when there's somebody there that genuinely just does does good for the club, yeah, with no strings attached, yeah. that other people will just with that tall poppy syndrome. We're going to cut them down, aren't we? Yeah. we? You know, that's what people do is they'll sit there and start to speculate what that person is thinking and why they're doing it. Now we know that some people get involved. And and just try to become somebody because they've got nothing else in their lives in a yeah, kind of way. Yeah. But that that doesn't last because no. people they get caught out. Um, yeah. But someone like yourself, and the, and the testament to this, and the reason why I think this is that your involvement at club level and the amount of work that you did at club level went on for a very long period of time. It yeah. wasn't just a flash in the pan where you came and went, and you could have walked away from it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At any point in time, you could have said, and and it probably wouldn't have bothered you if you walked away from it. Whereas some people that walk away from it's like, oh, they're all against me, you know. Or, yeah, you know, yeah, that kind of stuff. yeah. Uh, no, I prided myself in keeping a good standard of member of the club, um, but it got away from me in the last ten years a bit uh, because uh, some of those people that I didn't make them welcome at my shop. Are even in that club, in it, even in the Doncaster club. Yeah, mm. 
Um, it's an interesting subject what you're talking about that because it's yeah right it's psychology. Um, I haven't mentioned on this, but I am a life member of the club, um, and uh, and when I was made a life member of the club, a very good set of rules was drawn up by uh, David Gibbs and, a, and one or two other models in the club got together and made up a set of rules about how we give out, um, you know, gold. Uh, yeah, these these awards because um, if you don't have a set of criteria to work to, um, you, you, you can be giving them away just for twelve months' work, you know. But um, since since the day that they gave me my life membership and and the rules were drawn up of how they judged it and worked it out, um, I don't think there's another life member in the club because four four were given things a bit easy, you know. Well, I think there's, there's a lot of people like yourself that have really formed a lot of the clubs that we take for granted now. Uh, mm. People just put in hard work. You know, we see someone like a Peter Harris at my club at um, Packenham that's been involved on the committee for many, many years and just yeah. keeps on turning up yeah. day in, day out to, to work yeah. for the club. Peter Harris, what a special person he is, eh? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they're the kind of people that, you know, that they make the sacrifices for us. You know, I don't... I'm the first one to put my hand up and say say that it's very very hard for me to get very very involved at my local club in in helping out with things. You know, um, I'll I'll help out with, you know, I got a phone call about maybe helping out with some some you know designing a flyer or something like that, and I'm more than willing to help because that is my skill set that I can do yeah. at home and I can manage the time. I can't wait for the day when I retire and I can go and sit on the mower and cut the strip every week because I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to enjoy that. I'm going to just sit back and listen to my old Flat Out RC podcast episodes in the headphones. But uh, but my time will come. It's hard for me um, with all my commitments to, to try to make that. But there's a lot of people that do make that commitment and, and make the club a priority for them to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, but question for you. Yes, you've been an avid flyer at the Doncaster Club. How... How much travelling around to different clubs did you do back in those Hawthorne hobby days? Did you go to visit other clubs as well? Oh, a few clubs. I was I was in for a lot of it. I was in the Lilydale Club as well, um, because we didn't have week weekday flying at Doncaster, so I could sneak out early in the mornings and go to Lilydale and fly. You know, um, but I, I got around a bit uh, because of the competitions. I got around, you know, P and Darks and and up to Shepparton and down Geelong and, and yeah, I got around a bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what about, um, you know, being busy with the shop and all that kind of stuff? Did you did you have time for your own modelling and building models? Not really. <laughs> no, I used, to, I used to close the shop at 5.30 and stay there for an hour or two and just put a couple of hours building in at the shop just to keep up with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, one thing you haven't asked me, Andrew, is who's the number one person in my books as as the member of the Doncaster Club, and you know him. Well, I don't know. I, look, I was going to say me, but then you said Doncaster Club and I haven't been a member of the club. But, um, <laughs> but okay, who, who is it? I, and it's, it's interesting it's to know a, because... It's a, gentleman, it's a gentleman called Stan Newell. Uh, Stan's now 103. Okay, now tell tell I, I've met Stan. We interviewed him on camera together. Now tell me, t- tell the story of Stan Newell because he's a classic. Stan Newell is a beautiful man. He's a gorgeous man, and that's why he's reached 103. Stan Newell grew up in the country, um, went to school on horseback, uh, 
all right through his school days, right through. He went on horseback to school and back home. Um, as he, um, he was well and truly married when he did this, but he built his own full-size light aircraft. Because he's crazy, he but it, yes. He flew it. <laughs> Didn't it have a Harley-Davidson motor in it or something? It had a Harley-Davidson motor in it, and the first prop he made for it didn't have enough. It was the right diameter, sort of, but it wasn't pitched up enough, and it wouldn't get airborne. And he, whether he made it or whether he got a prop, and I think he made the next one with more pitch, and it flew. So that's how, that's the trial and error part, and it was. And I've seen photos of it, the actual framework. It was neat, it was neat, but it wasn't classy. But I've seen it, yeah. We had a little bit of an argument with him, didn't you? Because you thought he'd only flown it once. Somebody had told you that. Maybe. Uh, he said, yeah, he was, <laughs> he's, he's dodgy old Stan. He was flying that thing off a mate's farm or yeah, something like yes. that. And yeah. and it wasn't sort of registered or anything. He was no. taking up flying a few circuits yeah. kind of thing just around the farm. He had one rule. He believed he wouldn't kill himself if he didn't fly it really high. So when he got up to about 30 or 40 feet, he'd bring it down to about 20 feet. He reckoned he glided it in from anywhere there. And, and it, but he never had to. And he took off in some rough paddocks too, I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> and we, 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 flew, we flew a little a foam pipe tub when he was just over 100 years old. Yeah, and uh, yeah, because yeah, I was down at the club when he, he had a fly and he was in his yeah. 90s at that point in time, late 90s. Yeah. He'd stopped flying at that stage, but because of his eyes, but put him on the buddy box. I put him on the buddy box for this because he could fly. He flew the model around when it was in close, but as soon as it got out, he'd say, oh, I can't see it, and I'd turn <laughs> and bring it back. And now, was, was, was Stan, a, was he a, a member for a long time with Doncaster? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. He was a member probably for uh, 35, 40 years. Yeah, yeah, oh, they used he was a glider flyer, and they used to fly in Westerfolds Park over in. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Over there. And then I got them all to join up with the Doncaster Club, and we had a really we used to have Saturday afternoons gliding, and the boys would have four or five bungees out all at once, you know. See, this is amazing because the field is so small at Doncaster. It's a footy pitch. Yeah. <laughs> where were you flying? Like gliders over where? Over the other ovals? Oh, or? just no. We just we we always landed on. Oh. There's no problem with gliders. It was easy, you know? but but you know wind changes used to cause tangles with the bungee cords. <laughs> what, yeah, what about getting up in the trees and stuff? Oh, uh, we didn't. We we always had sticks and things to push them out of trees. But most guys learned to fly pretty well and safe. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty good. I can well. I always say I can tell Doncaster flyer because they fly in a shoebox. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I take Con Gabriel away from yeah. Doncaster, put him somewhere else, and I go, we're not in Doncaster now. Stretch your legs. You've yeah. got plenty of room. Use it. Yeah. yeah. The club the club doesn't actually have real boundaries at all. It's it's allowed to fly anywhere in the park, but certain club members have created their own rules and put them through the club, and the club's now got rules, which they break every week. Um and I felt that that was very foolish to have. If you had an incident, you're breaking the rules. And if, so they bought it. They, they've sort of set boundaries, which is a crazy thing to do because aeroplanes have sky, and you've got to you've got to come in straight. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now, but now, you go down to Packenham now. You're also a member of the Packenham um, yeah, and Dance um, Club as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy yeah. Packenham. Yeah, it's good fun. There's plenty of plenty of space there. Plenty of yeah. runways, charging yeah. facilities. About to leave, 
with me i'm not really asking we'll get away to a place where we don't know we'll cut it there and that means it's another episode of the flat rc podcast done and dusted stay tuned for part two of the cliff mckiver special uh so i uh, hope you're enjoying it so far there's still a lot more ground to cover with cliff uh it was definitely a few hours on the call with him so big thank you to cliff for spending the time with me and uh you know i was thinking about this when i was having a chat with cliff that with all the people that i've interviewed we now have a documented record of their history in Aero modern when you think about that you know we're not all going to live forever but we're going to have these archives of these interviews about these people's stories in their own moment, which is awesome to think about. So anyway, we can always share those stories. So hope you enjoyed the podcast. I hope to see you at the Shepherd and Mammoth event this weekend. Uh, I'll give you an update on how it all went, and um, I'm shooting a video there as well. So uh, I hope you're getting out there. I hope that you're keeping your wiring neat in your models. If anybody wants to help me, just yell out. I'll accept your help. Anyway, hope you have a good week, and I'll be back next week with more.